0: This is Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Melenkov. I'd like to welcome you once again to the Search for Certainty. It's good to see you all here today, and I also want to welcome those who are watching from far and wide, wherever you may be. Welcome along to this fourth episode in the Search for Certainty. Uh, Thus far, for those that may not have joined us, thus far we have been looking at the signs of Jesus coming. We have discovered that Jesus is indeed coming very, very soon. We have discovered that Jesus gave us signs, signs in the political world. He gave us signs in the world of nature. He gave us signs in the social world, signs in the economic world, signs in the religious world. And the greatest and final sign that He gave us that would usher in the grand climax of human history was the preaching of what? the everlasting gospel to all the world. These are the most important signs. In particular, this final sign is the most important sign of all that prepares the world for the second coming of Jesus. Now, why did Jesus give us these signs? It was simply to enable us to be ready for His soon return so that when we see all these things come to pass, as Jesus said in John 14, 29, that we may believe there would be nothing worse then being unprepared for for a great event or for a stupendous crisis. And as we have discovered, this world is heading toward a great stupendous crisis that will climax and culminate in the second coming of Jesus. And so Jesus has given us these signs so that we can be ready. We can watch and be ready and we can also help others to be ready. Now, today we want to continue to look at this all important sign, the preaching of the gospel to all the world, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to how many nations, to all nations. And then the end will come. Today, we want to in particular look at the everlasting gospel. We want to take a look at what Jesus has done for each and every person so that None may perish, but that all may come to repentance and receive everlasting life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I've entitled this fourth presentation, Rescue from Above. Before we move into this most beautiful and most dramatic story of the gospel, as we journey with Christ from Gethsemane all the way to Golgotha, I'd like to take us on another journey and reflect on another inspiring event that took place not so many years ago. Some of you may remember um, back in 2010, August 5, to be exact, when the San Jose gold and copper mine there in Copiapo, Chile, suffered a a, a massive cave-in there were 33 miners that were trapped 700 meters below the earth's surface whilst they were going about their work, the youngest being 19 and the eldest being 63. And so the world didn't know whether they were alive or whether they were dead. And so there was anxiety, not just there in Chile, but around the world. And many wondered, would, would these miners add to the statistics of more deaths um, in this very precarious industry of mining. So the families came together and they began to gather from far and near. And as they were gathering from far and near, two days after the initial collapse, another collapse as the rescuers were trying to get to these miners, 700 metres below the earth's surface, another collapse, which put pay to them being rescued in a very short space of time. Day after day, the families prayed, prayed and prayed for a miracle. Would there be a miracle? Day after day went past two days, three days, a week, two weeks, no sign of the minors. People began to lose hope. But the families, they didn't. They continued to pray. And then finally, after 17 long days, a message from the miners came to the surface and it was, it was a, a, a piece of paper and it had red letters in Spanish. And the message, and I'll read it to you in English, we are all well in the shelter, all 33 of us. Can you imagine the excitement. Can you imagine the explosion of energy amongst the families that had gathered there praying and hoping and pleading with God for a miracle? The whole world erupted in joy that the miners, that they were all alive. But now the big problem, how to bring them back to the surface? And so the Chilean government, spoke to a number of other governments in order to find out what was the best way to try and get these, get these miners from where they were to where they needed to be. And so they spoke to governments as well as to NASA and they finally came up with a plan. They came up with a capsule and that capsule was, became known as Phoenix 2. It was just big enough for one individual to go down. And so after sixty eight days, after sixty eight long days, the capsule was ready to go down. And so the first rescuer went down as a guinea pig to see if this capsule would work. Everyone watched and wondered. And then finally, after some time, the first miner came to the surface It was 24 hours later when the final miner, the foreman himself, came to the surface. The whole world erupted in celebration. After 69 long days, talk about a long shift. After 69 long days, they finally made their way to the surface, reunited with their families. As I think about that story, I cannot help but think of another rescue effort, another rescue effort that took place 2000 years ago, where this world was in a position just like those miners where we could not rescue ourselves. And so God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to this world to perform the greatest rescue effort this universe has ever seen. Today, we want to take a look at this rescue from above, the greatest rescue of all, as we discover the good news of the everlasting gospel. Before we get to the story of the gospel that we have in the powerful scriptures, I want us to think about that movie that came out not so long ago, produced by Mel Gibson, The Passion of Christ. How many of you had an opportunity to see that? Okay. A couple of you have. The Passion of Christ, where Mel Gibson tried to, tried as best he could through the lenses of Hollywood to capture what Jesus went through from Gethsemane all the way through to Golgotha. Now, today we are not going to go to the lenses of Hollywood. Today, instead, we're going to go to the Holy Word, the Holy Word, because today we will discover that God's Word is able to take us where no camera in the world will take us. Today, we will go together to the very heart of God's heart, the very heart of the gospel message and discover what it is that Jesus Christ did for us. But before we open up God's Word, what must we do? We must pray and ask the God that inspired the pages of this book to illuminate our minds and warm our hearts with the good news of Jesus and His love. So let's just pause and pray. Loving Father in heaven, we want to thank You for this opportunity to open Your Word. Father, we could be doing a whole bunch of things right now. But Father, there is one thing that we want to be doing more than anything else, and that is opening Your Word and in particular, opening the pages of Your Word that specifically point us to Jesus and His great love for us on Calvary. So, Father, as we open Your Word, please, through Your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds that we may be willing to receive these precious truths from Your Word is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I want to go to a scripture that we've looked at thus far a beautiful scripture in John chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Jesus said that if He is lifted up, He will draw all people to Himself. It's a powerful statement. What's Jesus here saying? Jesus is saying that if we look to Him, if we look to His sacrifice, if we look to Calvary, that has the power, that has the force to draw us to Himself. And I want to put it to you, my dear friends, that if the sacrifice of Christ does not draw you to the heart of God, nothing else will in this world. This is the greatest power that we have to draw us to Christ Himself. And so as we go to the very heart of God, we want to go to the old city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem there, where the final hours of Jesus' life here on earth, before His crucifixion took place. Notice, before Jesus went to the cross, He prayed this all-important, powerful prayer. There, gathered together with His disciples on that Thursday evening, that Passover Thursday evening. Notice the prayer that Jesus prayed. We have it in John chapter 17 and verse 1. Father, Jesus is praying. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. What was Jesus here praying? Jesus here was praying that the father would glorify himself through the son. What's the glory of God? The Bible tells us in the book of Exodus that the glory of God is a revelation of his character. It was time for the character of God to be To be showcased before the whole universe, the truth about God, the truth about His love. You see, before this point, God's reputation had been placed through the dirt, especially by His own people. God was seen as someone to be afraid of, not someone to be a friend of. God was seen as someone who was stern and someone who was harsh. But it was time now for the whole world, for the universe to see what the love of God truly was like. The hour has come. The hour had come for that plan of salvation to be put into place. That plan of salvation that God gave to Adam and Eve at the very beginning, when He told them that a Saviour would come to pay the price for their sins, to reunite them with God. And that Saviour would be none other than their Creator, Jesus Christ. As we go together to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means oil press. We'll discover that this is indeed where the very heart of Jesus Christ was pressed out because of what he was going through, the sins, the burdens that he was experiencing. I've had the opportunity of going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that was one of the most, one of the most powerful, one of the most precious experiences in my life. Notice what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. We have these words in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 39. This is Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, recounting what Jesus prayed and what took place there in Gethsemane. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That would be James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus' soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. We'll discover what those words mean in just a moment. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He went back after visiting with his disciples who were asleep. He went back to the same spot. And Matthew continues on and he says he prayed, Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And then one more final time, the Bible says, so he left them, went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words, Father, let this bitter cup pass from my lips. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What was filled in that cup that Jesus was invited to drink by His Father? It was the sins of the entire world. All the sins that had been committed for the past 4,000 years up until that point and all the sins that would be committed by every single individual all the way to the second coming of Jesus. Jesus said, If there is a plan B, Father, please, I'm willing to take plan B. But the father said, no, my son, no, my son, there is no plan B. You must drink that cup. If my children will come back home to where they belong, to where I wanted them to be at the very beginning of time. I can just picture in my mind's eye what was going through Jesus' mind, the temptations that he was experiencing right then and then. I can just imagine the devil himself was there in the garden tempting Jesus with the thought that if he drank that cup, the separation of sin would be so great, the gulf would be so enormous that it would separate him from his heavenly father forever. You and I, we cannot even begin to comprehend what that must have meant for Jesus Christ. They had never been separated. From all eternity, they had been one. And now Jesus had to make a choice whether He would be willing to drink that cup. Sin, sin separates us from God. Would He be willing to experience that utter and total separation from His Father that we would forever be united with our Heavenly Father? Would He be willing to take on board what we deserve? I can just imagine what the devil was sharing with him. You've come to your own people and your own people have rejected you. Your disciples, they will all forsake you. Your most most zealous disciple in a few short hours will deny ever knowing you. He will heap down curses from heaven in in order to make it clear that he doesn't know you. He doesn't have any idea who you are. One of your disciples has gone to fulfill that final act in betraying you. Don't do it. You will never see your heavenly Father again. Notice Luke, Dr. Luke, gives us an insight as to what was taking place there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice these words. He's a physician and he brings this very powerful point across in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. I used to think once upon a time that Luke, Dr. Luke, was using hyperbole, that Jesus was sweating so profusely that it it appeared like drops of blood. Little did I realize that you can actually sweat real blood. Until I did some research and I discovered that it is possible and people have sweated blood. Notice, The term for sweating blood, real blood, is hematidrosis. It's an extremely rare condition characterized by the sweating of blood, which is said to occur when a person is facing death or other highly stressful events. It has been seen in prisoners before execution and occurred during the London Blitz. During World War II, hematidrosis is attributed to rupture of the capillaries surrounding sweat glands with oozing of blood into the glands and out of the sweat ducts. So what was going on with Jesus? What was going on with Jesus is this. Jesus was experiencing such Pain, emotional pain, emotional stress that you and I, we cannot begin to comprehend the separation that he was beginning to experience with his heavenly father was literally, literally squeezing the very life out of him. And my friends, the truth is, the truth is that unless the God, the father intervened in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would never have made it to Golgotha. He never would have made it. He would have died there and then in the Garden of Gethsemane. But notice what God did. Notice what God did in Luke chapter 22, verse 43. Luke goes on and he says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Oh, Jesus would not die in the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane on his own. No, that was not the plan of salvation that God had prepared before the foundations of the earth. Jesus said, and we read the words earlier in John 12, 32, If I am what, lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Jesus had to be lifted up before the whole universe for all to see. So there would be no doubt why Jesus died and how Jesus died, which we will get to in just a little bit. It was not time. For the son to die, although he could well have died there in the garden. But the father sent his angel and the angel strengthened Jesus in his time of trial. That's good news for me. And that ought to be good news for all of us. Why? That is because that same angel God will send to you during your time of trial, during your hour of anguish and nothing will take place in your life unless God allows that. And it's always for His honour and glory. And so you and I can rest knowing that the same Father that loved His Son is the same Father that loves us supremely. And we can rest in the assurance that He loves us with an everlasting love. Jesus was whipped mercil- mercilessly. I was about to say mercifully. There's nothing merciful about the whipping that Jesus experienced. The Romans were experts at whipping 39 lashes. And I won't go through all the details. Those of you who have seen the movie, um, you well know uh, what a prisoner experienced during this time of, of whipping, where that whip that had lead and glass embedded at the end of the whip would just take flesh and just rip it away and the prisoner would be bloodied and it would be a terrible mess. Many didn't even survive the whipping. They didn't survive the 39 lashes. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6, words written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Wow. Jesus was willing to be spat upon, willing to experience that bitter shame in order that you and I may bask in the glory and in the grace of God. Jesus traded places with us. That's the gospel. That's the everlasting gospel that has been true about God throughout all eternity jesus was here demonstrating demonstrating so there would be no doubt whatsoever as to who god was what the character of god was and ultimately how much god loves us the entire human race they put a crown on jesus forehead that 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 head that deserved only the crown of glory received a crown of shame and pain. The Bible tells us in Psalm 22, verse 16, David writing a thousand years before the time of Christ, they pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 22, verse 16. How did David know that that is how Christ would die? Crucifixion hadn't even been invented a thousand years before Christ. It was invented About 500 years after this period. But Jesus was crucified. Crucified. Crucifixion was reserved by the Romans for the worst of the worst. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. Only non Roman citizens, the worst of the worst, were crucified in order to make them a public example to the rest. Of, of, of what will happen to you if you put a foot wrong in the Roman Empire. Jesus was crucified. It was very painful, very painful, more painful than you and I can even begin to imagine. Can you imagine those hands that brought sight to the blind? Those hands that healed the lepers, those feet that walked endless miles, endless kilometers to bring hope and happiness and joy to hundreds and thousands of people. Those feet that brought life to the dead, they were now crucified, they were now pierced. The Bible says in Psalm 22, verse 18, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Here, David, once again, is prophesying concerning Christ. No artist in their right mind would picture Jesus on the cross without any clothing whatsoever. But the reality of the situation is that most who were crucified were crucified completely naked. Now, was that the case with Jesus? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But could it be that our Savior was willing to be completely shamed in order that we may receive that, that robe of righteousness? That's one thing I do know. That is one thing that I'm certain of. Jesus was willing to be shamed that I may have that robe of righteousness. And we do know, we certainly do know that his seamless robe was taken off him and that was gambled by the soldiers. I have nakedness. You have nakedness. We all have great nakedness because we're all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all fallen short of what God's ideal is for us. We all deserve to be ashamed But no, God says, I will not that you have that shame that belongs to you. I will place that shame upon my son. Jesus says, I will take on board that shame. I'm willing to receive that shame that my children may be clothed, that they may walk with that beautiful robe of righteousness. Matthew goes on in chapter 27 and verse 31. Matthew writes, And when they had mocked him, they led him away to be crucified. Now, today we don't quite understand crucifixion. Having said that, I have seen and and heard of disturbing um, news that in some parts of the world, even today, they are practicing crucifixion. Are you aware of that? Some of you may have even come across some news items and news articles. I won't say too much more about that. But crucifixion was a common practice back in the day of Jesus. In fact, the word crucifixion comes from the Latin word excruciates. What English word do we get from excruciates? Excruciating. It was excruciating pain. Why is that? That's because an individual who was crucified, they they would often remain suspended between heaven and earth for hours and even days on end. An individual could live, if you want to call it that, up to three to seven days. Why is that? Because their their vital organs were not not affected through the crucifixion. And so natural instinct would kick in and you would breathe just instinctively. And, And it wasn't until... Finally, your energy levels just completely dropped away and then asphyxiation took place that the prisoner died. Or if the soldiers were merciful and they, and they broke your knees, they, they, they smashed your legs and you couldn't raise yourself up to breathe and then you would die if they were willing to perform that act of mercy towards you. But Jesus didn't die after three days. After two days, or even after one day, the Bible says Jesus died after being on the cross for six hours. Unlike those, the two that were on either side of him. Why is that? We're going to get to that in just a little bit. But as we think about the cross, as we think about the cross today in in Christianity, the cross is the main symbol. The main symbol that that that, that Christians cling to that is a symbol of, of who they are. We have we have crosses in churches. We have crosses in our homes. We have crosses on the Bible. We even wear crosses around our necks. But it was not so in the day of Christ. The cross was a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of pain. It was a symbol of the Roman yoke that the people were under and ultimately and most importantly, in the day of Jesus Christ, the cross was a symbol that you were cursed of God. Cursed of God. Notice these words that the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the what? From the curse of the law, having become a what? A curse for us, for it is written... And now he's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone having been hanged on a what? On a tree. As far as the Jewish mind was concerned, to be hung on a tree was to experience the curse of God. The Jews didn't practice crucifixion as their form of capital punishment. The Jews practiced stoning. And there's a number of situations there in the Bible In the New Testament, where stoning was the the choice of capital punishment. And so why did they ask for Jesus to be crucified? Why not stone Jesus? It's because they wanted to make it clear to all, especially Jesus Christ, the one who claimed to be the Messiah, that He, because He claimed to be one with God, deserved to have the curse of God upon Him. And so when Jesus hung on the cross, he hung in the sight of all the people who believed, based on what they understood this all to mean, he was suffering the curse of God. Jesus experienced our curse that we may experience his blessing. We deserve the curse. I deserve to be cursed, isn't that right? Because of my sins. Jesus committed no sin. The Bible says he was he was perfect. He was pure. And yet he took on board himself the curse of God. He was willing to drink that bitter cup filled with the pain, the shame and the sin that belongs to you and me and to every other person that has ever lived on planet Earth. Notice what the Apostle Paul writes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For he that is God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the what? The righteousness of God in him. Can you you try and grasp the gravity of these words of the Apostle Paul? As As he's writing to the believers there in Corinth, there in ancient Greece, who are living in a in a in a in a city that is filled with sin and immorality and all things in opposition to God and his character and he says to them he says Christ was willing to trade places Christ was willing to be cursed From God. Christ was willing to experience the bitter shame. Christ was willing to experience the penalty of unrighteousness that we may be called the righteousness of God. Talk about trading places. There has never been a better offer that this world has ever received, isn't that right? Can you come up with a better offer than that? I certainly can't. That is the gospel. That's why Jesus said this gospel, this good news, and that's what the word gospel means. It means good news. Good news about what? Good news that Jesus took on board my punishment. He took on board your punishment. He took on board the punishment of the world so that we may experience the blessings of righteousness of God. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, he writes these words. He that is Christ was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. We receive healing through and by the stripes of Christ. We receive healing through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is where we go to be healed That's why I like to say to the people that come to church, I share with them, don't stop coming to church. Why? Because the church is a hospital. A hospital for who? A hospital for sinners. We go there every week to receive the medication that we so desperately need. And that medication flows from Calvary. It's the medication that Jesus gives through His sacrifice a hospital for sinners by his stripes, we are healed. That is the good news of the gospel. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted to come down from the cross and save himself. If you read the accounts there in the gospels, you discover that Jesus was tempted to come down from the cross by the by the unruly rabble. That had cried out, crucify him, crucify him by the religious leaders, by the Roman soldiers and by one of the thieves on the cross. If you are the son of God, why don't you come down and save yourself and us, cried the thief. Notice these words that were shared or that were that were directed at Christ in order to inflict even greater pain and suffering. Matthew 27 and verse 42. He saved others himself. He cannot what? He cannot save. These words, these words were designed to inflict pain, more pain to the heart of Jesus Christ. But little did they know, little did they know, those who uttered these words, that they were actually speaking The gospel in a nutshell. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Why is that? That is because God could not save His Son and save you and me at the same time. Jesus could not save Himself and also save us at the same time. Someone had to pay the price. For the Bible is very clear. In Romans 6.23, it tells us, for the wages of sin is what? is death, death. And we're not talking about dying the way we understand dying. The Bible calls that the first death. The death that the Apostle Paul speaks of in Romans 6, 23 is the second death, according to Scripture, the death where there is no more coming back. There is no more coming into the arms of your loving Heavenly Father, where it is separation from God, the Father forever and ever and ever. Jesus could not Save you and me and himself all at the same time. Someone had to drink that bitter cup of eternal separation, and Jesus chose to be separated from his heavenly Father forever in order that we might be reunited with our heavenly Father and live with him forever. That's the gospel, that's the good news. If that doesn't draw us to Jesus, what will? What will? Can God demonstrate His love in a more profound manner? I certainly can't think of another way. Notice what we read in Luke chapter 23. Luke here goes on and he And he shares with us what was taking place there at Calvary. Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. What did did Jesus cry out in a loud voice before he uttered those final words? He cried out the words, it is is finished according to john chapter 19 and verse 30 it is finished those same words are translated in first john 4 8 god is love god is love jesus paid the price jesus won the victory He claimed the victory on our behalf. Those same three words, we heard them at the very beginning in the garden when God went looking for Adam and Eve. And he said, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? God's ultimate rescue plan completed at Calvary. Jesus rested in his father's care and keeping. Jesus could not see his father's face, as we'll get to in just a moment. But he rested by trusting in his heavenly father. He rested not by sight, not by feeling, but by faith. And he was able to cry out, my dear father, my father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. Jesus died after being on the cross for only six hours, as I've already shared. Why is that? Why did Jesus die after being on the cross for only six hours? Matthew in his gospel gives us a powerful insight. Notice these words. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. That word there loud is the word mega. This is not a not a whisper, not a whimper. This is, this is a loud cry. This is a shriek. Cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why was Jesus on the cross for only six hours? It was because he died, not of the pain, not of the suffering, not of asphyxiation, but Jesus died of a broken heart. Really? Jesus died of a broken heart? Are you trying to tell me, Danny, that that's the truth? Absolutely. Notice these words that were prophesied about Jesus Christ in the book of Psalm, chapter 13 and verse 1. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This is here David prophesying what Jesus would be experiencing. On Calvary's Mount, he goes on, Psalm 69, verse 20 and 21. Reproach has broken my heart and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for my comforters, but found none. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Notice those first few words. Reproach has done what? Broken my heart reproach has broken my heart. So what effect, what effect did the father having to turn his face away from his son have on the son of God It broke his heart? That's why the Bible says there was darkness all over the earth from midday to 3 p.m. There was darkness. The father had to turn away from his son. And why did the father have to turn away from his son? It was simply this. Jesus had to pay the price of sin. The Bible says sin separates us from God. And Jesus had to experience that separation from his father. He had to go through everything that sadly, those who do not accept the good news of the gospel will have to experience themselves at the end of time. Jesus drank that cup filled with, with sin, which is separation from God. The Bible says in the end, sadly, those who reject the cup that Jesus drank on their behalf, the price that Jesus paid for them, they sadly will drink that cup themselves and they will experience their final and ultimate separation from their heavenly father. Reproach has broken my heart. I wanted to do a little bit of research and find out whether you can actually die of a broken heart. We've heard of young people, teenagers talking about, oh, you broke my heart. Oh, I'm shattered. Oh, I cannot live and so on and so forth. And we kind of think that's all just part of being a romantic teenager or a romantic 20 something or a romantic 30 something or whatever the case might be. But I discovered that you can actually die of a literal broken heart. I went to the to the famous um, and world-leading um, hospital and research institute, John Hopkins, and um, and I punched in the the words a broken heart. Frequently asked questions about a broken heart syndrome came up, and notice the words from this particular website from John Hopkins: stress. Cardiomyopathy. Stress cardiomyopathy, also referred to as the broken heart syndrome, is a condition in which intense emotional or physical stress can cause rapid and severe heart muscle weakness. Cardiomyopathy. This condition can occur following a variety of emotional stresses, such as grief, that is the death of a loved one, fear, extreme anger and surprise. Jesus died of a broken heart. Why? Because he experienced that extreme emotional trauma that you and I cannot even begin to comprehend when the father had to separate himself from his son. That is why Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt completely abandoned. That is The consequences of sin, the consequences of sin are that we are completely abandoned. We are completely separated from God. And that's why Jesus came to bridge that gulf that we could never bridge. We needed a rescue and we needed a rescue from above. That was our only hope. Jesus was willing to be forsaken, my friends, in order that we may be forgiven Not only did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus also cried out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them all. Forgive them. Why would you want to turn your back on such a gift? Why would you want to say no to such an invitation? Father, forgive them. It's for you. It's for me. It's for all of us, wherever we may be watching wherever you may be watching, in a palace, in a prison, somewhere in between, the gospel is for all. For God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and receive that wonderful gift of salvation. John 3.16 puts it in the most beautiful way possible. For God so loved the world, Well, let's say this together. We've got to say this together, don't we? Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. There's the gospel. Whoever believes in Him will never have to perish, will never have to experience the second death that Jesus Christ experienced. And I have people say to me, but Danny, didn't Jesus say that he would rise again? Didn't he know that he would rise again? Yes, it's true. He did say that and he did know that he would rise again. But the truth of the matter is the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was not only the divine son of God. He was also the son of man. He was both the son of God and the son of man and and his humanness, if I could put it that way, in his humanness. He experienced that complete separation. In his humanness, he could not see beyond the tomb. In his humanness, he experienced everything associated with being forsaken. But in his divine, godly strength and nature, he was both God and man. He continued to put his faith and trust in the Heavenly Father who was there with him by his side, even though. In his humanness, he could not see or experience it. That is how we need to live, my friends. That is how we need to live in these final end times. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that God's people, they keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. They have faith in Jesus. They have the same faith that Jesus had. That's Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. God's people at the end of time will experience pain and anguish. God's people at the end of time will experience the, the temptations of separation. But God's people will need to put their faith and trust in God's word, in the promises of God's word and not in how they feel. Today, sadly, we're living in a day and age where even in Christian circles, people are making decisions on how they feel, what their gut is telling them, rather than what God's Word says. It matters not how you wake up in the morning, whether you wake up happy or sad. That matters not as far as how much God loves you, how much God wants to save you, the plans that God has for you. We need to put our faith and trust in God's Word and live by faith, not by sight. The everlasting gospel needs to go to all the world. It needs to go to all the world. This message of God's love needs to go to all the world. The truth about what God was willing to do needs to go to all the world. The truth that God was willing to empty out heaven with the greatest and the best gift of all. The truth is, my friends, God was willing to bankrupt heaven when he gave Jesus I know that's something you and I can't really comprehend. So don't even try. I've tried and I'm not getting very far at all. But the truth of the matter is that in giving Jesus Christ, God risked bankrupting heaven. You think about that. What would heaven be like without Jesus Christ? It wouldn't be a place worth living in. Isn't that right? I wouldn't want to be in heaven without Jesus. Who cares about the streets of gold? Who cares about the mansions? If Jesus isn't there, I don't want to be there. The darling of heaven, the desire of all the ages, as someone once put it. God was willing to risk never seeing his son again in order to bring us back to himself. That is why thousands and millions of the followers of Christ have been willing to live out their final days in dark and dank prisons, have been willing to be tortured and beaten. That is why thousands upon millions have been willing to be torn apart by wild beasts because of what Christ has done for them, willing to give everything and anything. And today, 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 As we sit here today, as we watch wherever we may be watching, there are people, men and women, boys and girls, who are giving up their lives for Jesus Christ. Why? That is because Jesus gave everything for them. When you recognize how much God loves you, when you recognize what God was willing to give to save you, you are willing to give everything for God nothing is too much, nothing is too great a sacrifice because you recognise, you recognise the truth that Jesus hath to die a death without hope, whereas you and I, we die a death with hope. That's the difference between the sacrifice of Christ and the death of the martyr. The martyr dies with the blessed hope. The Apostle Paul said, very clearly, that he was about to die. And he said, the crown of life, which the Lord, the righteous judge, has for me. He was assured of his salvation. He was assured that he would see Jesus. There was no darkness that surrounded the Apostle Paul. There was only glorious light. But not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. That is why even today there are those who are willing to go to the utter ends of the earth to share this good news of the gospel. That is why we are sharing this message via this telecast, the three angels' messages. What are the three angels' messages? Revelation fourteen six tells us it's the everlasting gospel, writes John, that has to go to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. The good news of the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves the world and is here to save he was at the cross and he saw Jesus. He was an eyewitness to Jesus. John, the Revelator, the beloved John. Notice these words that he writes in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the what? Children. The children of God. John, I can just... I can just picture him in my mind's eye. He's grappling, he's trying to find words to express the love of God. And he can't, human language is inadequate. And all he can say is, behold, look, wonder what love of the Father. That we ought to be called children of God. So the question is, how can I become a child of God. How can I become a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords? Notice these words from the same John. John chapter 1 and verse 12, who, by the way, was willing, willing to give up his life for his Saviour. Notice these beautiful words. John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name... It's as simple as that. As many as received him, as many as received him. It's a gift from God. That's what the gospel is. It's a gift. You come to Jesus just as you are. He takes you as you are. And then he begins to transform you day by day, more and more into his image. You come just as you are. I want to take you finally to the, to the interaction that Jesus had in Luke chapter 23 and verse 42 with one of those that was on his side, one of the thieves on his side. Notice what took place. Luke here records. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me. Where? In paradise. Jesus assured this thief, this thief that deserved to die. He recognized that. He said, we deserve this. But here is one who is pure, who is holy, who doesn't deserve this. And he saw in Jesus, not a common criminal, but he saw in Jesus the Lord. He saw in Jesus the Lord and he cried out, Remember me when you come. And Jesus said, yes, I'm telling you the truth today. Write it down, my friend. I'm telling you the truth today. When I come in all my glory, you will be with me forevermore because I am here today to pay the price for your sins that you may be with me in glory. That's not where the story ends. The story ends with an open tomb, an open tomb. He's alive. He's alive. And this is the risen Christ with a final invitation there in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I want to end with this powerful invitation from Jesus Christ. Behold, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, behold, says Jesus, these are the words of Jesus himself. I stand at the door and knock. knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What an invitation. What an invitation. Jesus says, behold, I'm standing. I'm knocking. I'm knocking. Is that your decision today, my friend? Do you want to invite Jesus into your heart? Do you want to say yes to the good news of the gospel? Do you want to say, yes, Lord, I want to be rescued. And I recognize that my only rescue is from above, from the one who came down to pay for my sins if that's your decision, if you want to right now either accept Jesus Christ for the first time or recommit your life to Christ or you have maybe wandered away from Christ. But today is the day to respond to the knock on your heart by Jesus. Why don't you just raise your hand with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for the good news of the gospel. Oh, Father, words cannot express our gratefulness. Oh, Father, may we not so much in words say thank you, but through our lives, lives lived for the glory of God. Oh, Father, I pray for each person who is watching those who are here. Father, enter their hearts through the Son, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and bless each one until that great day when we see you in the clouds is our prayer in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen and Amen. Listening to Focus on God's Word with Pastor Danny Malenkov, a production of 3ABN Australia Television. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au